What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Welcome to episode 43 of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today, we are chatting with Trina Peak, the founder of Obaki and the Obaki Foundation. And she's created a really interesting hybrid model, which I think we're seeing more and more of, of a company sort of creating a foundation sort of for themselves. So Obaki started as a fashion brand, still is a, as a, as sort of a lifestyle brand that creates products um, from artisans around the world, uh, specifically and mainly uh, in, in from Africa. And the Obaki Foundation benefits from, from the fashion brand. So far, the foundation has impacted 3 million lives around the world. And it all started when uh, Trina was eight years old. Uh, the story goes is, is and she'll tell it, but I, I'll kind of preface it a little bit here. But when she used to get an envelope every year from, from an anonymous person at their front door um, to help her and her mother sort of get through uh, the year, you know, help them out with, uh, with just to get by. And, you know, ever since then, she's been on her philanthropic journey, so to speak. And she has gone on to do, done absolutely incredible things. She's been to Africa over 60 times. When she's there with the foundation, she's really coming up with sustainable solutions for the communities that she visits and making long-term relationships, which is super important to her. And they do that through solar panel, water systems, educational support, obviously the entrepreneurial uh, support as well and creating these products and, and looking at the skills that these individuals have in the communities and just creating opportunities for them um, to, to sell their merchandise. It's uh, it's really incredible what, what she has accomplished so far. She's spoken about clean water solutions in front of U.S. Congress and the United Nations. Uh, she's spoken at TEDx. She's been endorsed by UNICEF and, and the Carter Center. Um, she's just had a, a life of philanthropy, and it doesn't seem to, seem to seem to be ending anytime soon, as she'll say. She's uh, in this for, for the long haul. Um, so, I mean, 3 million lives impacted is obviously pretty impressive and pretty amazing. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Um, she's, she's just an amazing person, and I, I really enjoy talking to her. On a cause artist note, I just launched the uh, jobs board. So it's something I've been wanting to do for a really, really long time is sort of create uh, a job board. And it's sort of in beta right now, but it's up. You could post a job for free. Um, so it'll be like that for the foreseeable future, and we'll see how it goes, see how people respond to it. Uh, but if you just go to jobs.causeartist.com, you can post a job for free. And yeah, just give me some feedback on that when you can, and let me know what, what your thoughts are on how I can how I can improve it um, and things like that. But and as always, if you have any any suggestions or any, any requests, anything like that, I'll try to answer everybody's email. So I apologize if I haven't got back yet. Uh, it's just grant at causeartist.com. Uh, looking forward. Uh, for you guys to hear this episode. I thought it was just really impactful, really educational, and, and just really, really inspiring. So hope you guys and gals have a great day and have a great week. Thanks. Bye. I always like to start these with uh, a person and an individual's journey on how they sort of get to where they decide to really do their life's work, I think, is is essentially what a lot of people that I talk to and sort of what the at what point they are in their lives, they're really dedicating right their life to something that they are intensely passionate about. But there's, I think there's always obviously a journey to get to that point. So I don't know if we want to start way back when you were eight years old, when you got that envelope. Um, <laughs> but if you'd like to start there and then we can, then we can kind of go from that point. But I think it was a cool story. So if you, if you want to start there, that'd be pretty cool. 
Yeah, sure. So I really got my start in philanthropy at a very young age. Um, I was growing up with my mom in, you know, a, a small town in a one bedroom house and we were having a hard time making ends meet and that isn't necessarily a unique story. I know a lot of people that are doing the type of work that I'm doing have come from those types of backgrounds. But what was really interesting for me that kind of sparked this whole uh, philanthropic path was that every year around the same uh, time I would get a white envelope uh, slipped under our door and it was just an unmarked envelope. There was no note in it, no return address, no no name attached, completely unmarked envelope of money. And that money every year would help me and my mom get through the year. Mm. And I remember my mom receiving it and putting it in her purse and being a bit embarrassed by it and crying. And for me, the significance wasn't the fact that we were receiving money, but the significance was that someone was giving it to us without expecting, Mm -hmm. wanting, or even needing anything back in return. And so... I, I literally have spent my entire life then trying to, like that per- person set the benchmark for who I wanted to be. And so I've kind of spent my life in philanthropy because of that random act of kindness. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty. And did you ever find out who it was at all? Or just, it, it just, it no, just nev- I, never wanted to seek it out, huh? Just I don't think that was important to them. I mean, mm-hmm. I've done a, a couple, you know, like different talks a lot of public speaking, some TED Talks, and I mentioned this person, and I mentioned how I got started in philanthropy because of, of this right. person's actions, and and um, I referenced it quite a bit because it was such a kind of historical, uh, special moment in my life that really did kickstart all of this, and uh, no one has ever come forward. And, <laughs> you know, I think it's pretty incredible because now we have you know, 3,000 or more than 3,000 water wells created in these countries that I'm working with over 3 million people having access to clean drinking water. And I attribute it back to that one person's action. So I wish that they're out there and that they hear it and they know that what (laughs) they did in my childhood really has now turned into over 3 million people having clean water. So I always believe there's that ripple effect to our actions that sometimes we don't see. Incredible. Um, The the one thing... I like to try to ask is, is how do you explain your sort of business or organization to somebody? Because Obaki does a lot of things, <laughs> right? So <laughs> yeah. it, it, when somebody asks you, like, what does your organization do? What does your brand do? Like, how do you even start to explain it? Do you start with it's a lifestyle brand that sort of benefits the nonprofit arm? And this is then what the nonprofit arm does. Like, how do you even go yeah. through everything that it, that the, that it does? Well, we're essentially this striving to be this philanthropic lifestyle brand. So whether people enter into our community um, sure. through the Obaki side, which is our product side, or they enter um, into our community through the Obaki Foundation side, which is our development um, side, you're still getting access to that same community, you know, uh, that's shared by a bunch of people who share the same values. So really, we're our values on the product side are similar to our values on the foundation side. And we're really just looking um, to give people an opportunity to do good through our community, whether you're accessing our development programs and as a, as a donor or a supporter or a fundraiser, or you're coming in and buying one of our products. So Hobaki itself um, covers all the administrative fees of Hobaki Foundation. So we're using fashion as a platform to create change. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people buy you know, a fashion item from us, they know that their purchase is going toward good as well. And even more so now we're shifting 
a little bit to include some more lifestyle product and that's coming from these artisans that I'm working with in these various countries. So through the collaborations that I'm doing with these artisans in these other parts of the world, it's all ethically made, it's made with intention, it's transparently sourced, it's artisanal production, we're increasing uh, livelihood initiatives and kickstarting economies in regions with local artisans. So when people buy our product, not only does the money that we make do good because mm-hmm. we put it into our development work, but you're also helping to support local artisans through your purchase. I think that's a really important point is that as a consumer, you know, we don't get to see actually necessarily how that impacts a artisan in, in Uganda, right? But can you paint a picture a little bit of like what happens when you have an artisan that's working for, you know, three years making stuff and consumers are buying it? Like how that person's life from, you know, before Obaki till, till like after, right? Like what's that transformation? You know what? That's such a great question. I'm so happy that you asked it because I think there is that level of detachment that people have. We've seen it with food, you know, going mm-hmm. into the grocery store and just buying food and taking right. it home and not actually realizing where did that food come from and what had to happen in order for you to have that food. And so it's the same with fashion and product. Like I just came back from Mali last week and went into this region of the world and, and worked with a whole bunch of different artisans and, and watching these artisans who are barely getting by at the moment because the tourist industry has plummeted since 2012. And in some cases, I was said um, to be the only white person they've seen in seven years. And all wow. these artisans were dependent on the tourism industry that crashed because of the conflict that's happening. And so I'm sitting with these people watching this a skill or a craft that they have honed their entire life. Like one man named Amadou is a woodworker artisan that I'm collaborating with to do some special design pieces um, together with him. And he has been doing that craft since he was eight years old. And the man is so incredibly mm-hmm. skilled and there's no local market for him to sell it. And so I come home with these beautiful large wood pieces. And, you know, now I've bought them from Amadou and Amadou then, you know, I, I what's really important on this side is that we assign uh, and stand behind the value of this product that we're getting. Mm-hmm. There's this misconception that if something's bought from an African artisan, that you get it at a really cheap price, which is, should absolutely not be the norm. And that's something that I'm standing behind as a company and as a brand is that if a man like Amadou existed here in this side of the world, and they do, they get right. paid thousands of dollars yeah. for these art pieces that they create. So, you know, for me, I'm I'm working with Amadou assigning a really strong value to the quality of his work because that's what he has spent his entire life creating and it's what he deserves. And I've got customers that then come and buy it and know the man that made it, his story, I've documented the process. And then Amadou gets to work less for you know the the money that he makes. So in these developing countries, for example, you end up with you know someone. It's mass production, and so large companies go in and they take over and say, "Make me three thousand of these, and I'll pay you next to nothing." So those people work around the clock in order to get almost next to nothing. But if we were to assign proper value to it, their mm-hmm. workload goes down, and that respect and value and meaning of that product that it deserves goes up. So that's really kind of what we're doing on the product side. Does that have- happen in the same area as like the foundation sort of does its work too, where this, let's say a community needs clean water, right? But they also need education, right? But they also need jobs. And then does this say Abadou's family then get from Obaki, do they have clean water projects going on in that yeah, same area? So, 
Mali is a new region that I just started working, and I started doing a lot of artisan collaborations there. But we, what we then will do as a company is go not only buy from the local artisans, but then start development programs in that region. So in the case of this, we would work on the reforestation of mm. these various trees that have now been exploited and used for larger logging companies and logging production, and, and also brought into the world to make furniture and I mean there's a lot of you know wood that is completely being pillaged in that region and the locals aren't getting anything out of it and guys like Amadou pick up the scraps and make some creations out of it so right. we're looking at doing working in reforestation um, we've got a Shea Better Collective that we're going to be working on over there and just um, not only helping the women market it locally which is part of for me when I look at the Obaki Foundation programs yes we do water wells but really what we look for are people to partner with and mm -hmm. you know philanthropy and the old way of philanthropy really has to die it's not about yeah. handouts it's about partnerships it's about being you know part of a, a, a larger business plan and you know even in the work i do in uganda i've got a collective of beekeepers and i've trained my beekeepers and then you know they go out and train other people and then we buy the honey from them mm. sell it and then bring back the profits to expand the beekeeping program so everything that i'm doing has a business element to it because that's really for me when it becomes truly sustainable when you can just step out instead of you know having it be handouts so you know in the case of <clears throat> the work that i just did in mali we'll set up a little bit more marketing and branding and business structure behind the women in the sh in the shea co-op and then we'll also buy shea from them and do increased livelihood and economy through our partnership that way as well so it's kind of a couple different layers there can you talk a little bit about maybe like the first time you went to africa or was it another country you went to because i guess the foundation or even the fashion brand had to start sort of somewheres right like it had there had to be an origination period where you decided to start the foundation or did the fashion the fashion brand come first and then the foundation or was it vice versa yeah I've, i had always been doing philanthropy ever since i was i don't know 16 17 years old <laughs> wow. and so I had formed a small organization with a friend of mine, and I was always doing that on the side. And then I opened Obaki a little bit later in life as, you know, a separate company because I loved the idea of, um, you know, using product or fashion or those sorts of things to tell a story and to kind of tie my creative side together. But then as my fashion brand started to grow, you know, I'd come home and from an incredible trip to Africa and people's eyes would kind of gloss over as I started to talk about what I was doing. But, right. you know, as soon as I started talking about the next color of the season or right. I was doing New York Fashion Week or something, right. everyone started to perk up. So, and actually that made me quite angry. I, I was like, why do people care more about fashion than they do about, you know, that my charitable work? And I think mm -hmm. it was just that fashion is something, it's one of those industries where it's probably more accessible to people. It's easier for people to understand or wrap their head around. Um, a lot of people will never travel into these regions of the right. world where I, where I travel. And sometimes I think they feel overwhelmed as to how they can help or even feel guilty. And so I started to think about how could I use my fashion brand and the name that I built on that side of things to this platform to draw attention and awareness to the other side and so we started doing special collaborations through Obaki like scarves that I designed in the refugee resettlement areas and on the border of Uganda and South Sudan that the women refugees told the story of their lives through little drawings and then I put that onto a scarf and sold that around the world and launched it in Tokyo and 
came back with uh, all the proceeds and we started livelihood initiatives like soap making and tailor mm-hmm. shops and agriculture. And by telling their story through a scarf, I found I was able to connect with more people rather than telling them the hardships of the women themselves. So it just gave me this creative outlet to tell the same story, but just presented uh, or delivered in a different way. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's a beautiful thing. I think any, any way, I think, look, I think fashion is, has been a great sort of bridge between philanthropy and, and sort of doing some very impactful things and getting people involved that would never be involved, right? Like you said, I mean, a lot of people shop for clothes and accessories and it's obviously a massive industry, right? But like, there's a very small amount of people that will ever go to Mali, Mali, Mm -hmm. right? That'll ever go to Uganda or Kenya or uh, Japan, right? Yeah, and I'm always coming back with with these stories. So for me, it's like, rather than tell the story through the typical kind of grassroots method that we're just we've been oversaturated with it's, i'm right. just presenting it in in creative collaborations or, or different ways that may be a little bit uh, easier for people to digest i think and like i said giving people an opportunity to do good through our community and that's just through the purchase of a product if you're going to purchase a scarf why not purchase a scarf that's creating clean water in a village right, right? <laughs> well you mentioned that three million people now have been sort of impacted by the water efforts. Can you go into a little deeper about how that started and and give maybe paint a picture of what that does to a community, right? Because again, a lot of maybe people don't understand that, you know, clean water is not sort of readily available for people in developing countries. And it takes a lot of time and effort to go just find clean water, right? So, and then you, you don't, you don't, you can't go to school, right? Or you can't get a job or there's, there's these other ancillary things that your time is sort of dedicated to finding clean water and you can't sort of do foundational things to improve your life. Can you go into it just a little bit about what that means to affect 3 million people with clean water? Yeah. So I was working in Cameroon and one of my friends uh, who was a military officer in, in the Canadian military got posted at the end of his career. He was actually a major at the end of his career and they posted him in South Sudan. And they usually do that because South Sudan's a very hard region of the world to work in and they mm-hmm. want to make sure you don't get PTSD or that sort of thing from being in that region. So they actually deploy a lot of um, military officers at the end of their career to fill out their philanthropic um, legacy, I guess, at the end of their career. And so he got over there and within, I don't know, the phone rang in the middle of the night. I think he was there three days and he's like, Trina, we've got to work here. Like their bodies are laying around, you know, like people are dying because they just don't have access to food or clean water. And mm-hmm. um, and, and South Sudan is in an emergency <clears throat> crisis for sure. sure. And so, but really when there's fresh water tables running under the ground and so I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Let's go. Let's do 500. Just pulled a number out of the air. And, and that year I think we did 1500 or something, but I went over there, started going around to all these different villages and people are remain nomadic looking in these really remote regions they Mm -hmm. remain nomadic in search of water and even if they do find a water source that they stay at well other people find that same water source and it creates a lot of uh, conflict so we started working with the united nations and they would identify all these conflict hot zones and then our team would go in and start drilling water wells in those regions in order to start to instill some peace Um, but what we found when we started doing that is that you know that people would Day, they'd start to build their homes. The homes would then become safer because in that region of the world, if you don't have the water that creates the clay, that creates more of a mm-hmm. 
stronger foundation for your home. People were being ripped out of their wooden huts by animals in the night. And it was just an, it, really all these things that you don't think about. But the safety increases in the village. Of course, the health increases. The homes are built. And then, of course, the kids then can start to go to school because otherwise they're in search of water all day. A lot of children were crossing border zones and being attacked. So it's just even, you know, the health, the safety, the overall even economic improvements that happen, the women then have more time in their day to start focusing on things like agriculture. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could go in some places, we'd drill a water well, and I'd go back the next day to just check up on them. And the women have already started plowing the field in order to plant seeds. So wow. it, it can really transform that quickly. Um, and then we just stuck with those villages year after year and kept dropping in and visiting. And then we started agriculture programs, education programs, all that kind of stuff, because really without water, you can't do any of it. Right. And what's, I guess it, it's it's kind of tough to kind of go into super detail, but I think for, what does it look like to actually like build a well? Like how do you even get clean water to an area where there's not already? Like yeah, what, is, so- what is the mass sort of production you have to do and, and sort of workload that goes into creating something like that? Yeah, so we, I don't have any international staff. I only use local experts. Um, Mm -hmm. All of my country directors are from the countries that we work in. And so we work with like experienced hydrogeologists. We work with, you know, pump mechanics in South Sudan. We trained a whole pump mechanic team. Our water drillers are local. And so there's a rig or a machine that goes in. In the cases where you have access to, you know, more, um, a more stable region like Uganda, we use like a surveying machine to mm-hmm. determine where the groundwater is. But uh, a lot of the locals that I'm working with know where water is without even needing a survey machine. And so we just drill. You've got a machine and there's a whole technical process behind it. But within two to three days, you have a completed water well. So it really doesn't take that much time. And then, of course, we test it all and we do all the government testing and, and send in. And all of our boreholes have, you know, passed all of the the grades and, and uh, are still functioning today. And so one of the things that we do do is go around to a lot of organizations will drill a water well, but then never go back and check on them. And in mm-hmm. these zones where there's an emergency, there's still an emergency state of response, the communities really don't have enough money to save for, you know, a breakdown. And they, right. and, they right. and also in a lot of places, there's no spare part supply chain. So uh, there are a lot of wells that are broken all around. So part of our mandate every year is to go around and work on all rehabilitating all of these water wells that have been left behind by other NGOs. And so sometimes that only costs like $300 to repair a well if it's just like, a, you know, one of the pipes that needs replacing or a bearing or something. It's quite easy. So it's not hard to bring water. Water. Yeah, um, it's it's, uh, it's it's interesting. So, I mean, is the money the issue with yeah funding local, for sure? Just locally, yeah. they just don't have the funds to like build a well in these rural villages. No, no, okay. it's like ten thousand dollars to do it. Yeah. Okay, and so that comes from hopefully it comes from donors, but then it could come from the lifestyle brand, correct? when consumers yeah. buy yeah like our scarf our scarf mm-hmm. program that i was telling you about when we sell 500 of 
each color, then each color is linked to a specific village. So it's limited edition color, and so you buy 500 of those blue scarves. Like mm-hmm. people all over the world, we're creating a community of people here that's helping a community of people over there. So that blue scarf goes to the village of Amadici, and then they're connected. And then I go to Amadici and I visit the village, and I say 500 people care about you around the world. They're all wearing a <laughs> scarf in support of you, and and then I keep those communities connected with the people that purchase their scarf. So yeah. How is the I guess now it's probably a little different because you have so many like case studies and maybe quote unquote success stories. But early on, was it difficult to go into villages and talk about this idea or, you know, like even with like the local government or the people in the villages, is there a bit of resistance, so to speak, or, or just like uncomfortable somebody coming no. in trying to do this stuff or is everything no. just welcome? No, I don't think so. I mean, so we, when we're there, we're of course, practicing good governance. We're trying to keep Mm -hmm. the government accountable and all of the the water commissioners and and the county commissioners and the governors and everything because that's part of the sustainability. And so we always have our our meetings. And and really that's been the most challenging part to me is trying to get everybody to do their part and to do it well. But when when we go into the communities, I mean, I'm not going in saying hey, when I sell 500 of these, I'm going to drill a water well here and then make people wait, you know, six months for me to sell that scarf color. Right, right. Um, you know, I'm, what happens at the beginning of every year is I get a list of all of these villages that have applied for water or that follow our criteria. So we've got some set criteria on where we drill water wells and why we're choosing those particular villages. And um, then I build them into our scarf program here. So I'm not, so when I go over, I'm basically showing up to drill the water well is what happens. I see. I gotcha. So you go, you go very prepared. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, obviously water is, like you said, it's sort of the, the lifeblood and the foundation for, for everything, right. For then education, the the one thing I think after that is is housing. Do you see that as being the sort of the next big thing that that these villages need is is sort of stable housing, especially I guess it's it's different for housing in villages and then if you go to like you reference the Uganda or, or Sudan refugee camp, that's mm-hmm. just so different, right? There's such there's just a mass population there versus a small village. Um mm-hmm. but I was wondering if there's if there's a way to do housing in these small villages and then scale that up to really go to the refugee camps and sort of duplicate some type of model for housing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm completely opposed to providing housing for people. Um, That's just because, you know, I, I, I do know there are a lot of organizations that base um, their, their whole mandate or cause around, you know, people going into a region and building houses for the locals, but you won't find one person in these regions of the world that doesn't know how to build their own house. Mm, great um, point. And, and most of these houses are built using the natural raw materials that are available anyway. So I've never actually ever had to build a house in these regions because if we provide water, then within days, people are making their own bricks and building their own houses. And, right, right. Um, so it's actually not even a need. Um, in my opinion. And even, you know, in, in the refugee resettlement areas, it's, it's a bit different. But when people arrive, they're given, you know, sadly, like a, a tarp 
from the UN and said here. And so there's a lot of deforestation that's happening because people will go and cut down the trees in order Mm. to, you know, Mm -hmm. hike up their tarp to get under some shelter. Um, But as that was right in the early years, in the kind of emergency response time of that, and as organizations like ours come in and start to develop some program work, once you start to kickstart the economy with these livelihood initiatives, like we're doing tailoring and textiles, Mm. we're doing agriculture, we're doing beekeeping, we're doing soap making, we're doing shea butter processing, we're doing all of those things (laughs) that then give the locals their own uh, income, then you start to see everybody, and water, of course, and everyone just starts to build their own houses, so... That's crazy. All the different programs is, <laughs> yeah, is, it's so wild. Like, do, do, I mean, do you do you go to one village and be like, hey, do you want to learn textiles? Do you want to learn beekeeping? Like, how do you even figure <laughs> yeah, out? No, no, we do what's called participatory assessment. So everything is identified by the villages themselves. So, for example, I'm going to Uganda again uh, next week, or on Saturday, actually. And, we, you know, when I get there, we're we're doing shea butter processing in, in two neighboring villages. And I originally drilled water wells there. And when I sit with the community and I visit with them and talk to them, I'm always asking questions. It's not, it's not me going in with a plan and saying, hey, right. guys, you want right. to do beekeeping? It's me saying, what are the resources here? Where do you guys want to go as a village? Do you have any business plans developed? Where do you see yourselves obtaining livelihood? Um, What are you currently doing now for livelihood? And it always identifies itself. You know, I've got these two villagers. They're like, oh, well, we've got a lot of shea trees. And I'm like, okay, great. I know how to do this. So why don't we partner (laughs) together and away we go. Um, But I would never go in, you know, to a, a village like that that has already started to you know, they've got the knowledge of Shea production already and they understand um, they've got a little bit of a local market established. They just need some help connecting the dots or someone to come in and and help um, open a couple different doors for them that they may not have had access to. Quite often there's a gap in the market. So uh, like in our beekeeping, for example, I've got a lot of beekeepers that know how to beekeep, but they don't have access to that market and they don't know how to market their goods in order to sell them. So they may have, you know, a thousand kilograms of honey in a year, their entire village might have that, but then they it spoils and it never gets to market. And so I just kind of go in and, and help establish these business plans and then connect the dots for people. So, but I would never go into a bee, beekeeping community right? Yeah. and start a share butter processing <laughs> because that's not what they know, right? So it always has to be identified by the villagers themselves before i do anything yeah it's uh that that's there's there's so much uh (laughs) there's so much happening there i just couldn't even i couldn't imagine (laughs) sort of like i I thought it would but i think it's it's interesting how you connect the dots right because you have sort of skilled workers right people who are very creative and can build things right or create things and then it's just access to a platform really i think that's one of the beautiful things about for all the negative about what the internet brings, right? It, it also brings opportunity um, for people to sell their products to people in Nebraska, you know. But you mm-hmm. made them in Uganda, right? And it's there's sort of a there's sort of a, a beautiful song and dance there that is just it just never was able to happen, right? In human history, right. before. So I think. It's, and you it's, know what? I've been connected. Like I've just had a, a gentleman named Moses reach out to me, and he's from a northern part of Uganda in a place called a uh, district called Otuke. And he <clears throat> is emailing me saying, "I see that you're doing beekeeping in Yumbe. Well, I've got 300 trained 
beekeepers and we're just using traditional hives, would there be any chance that you come in and, and help us understand, you know, how to use the Kenyan top bar hives and to increase our production and to get to market? Mm. So, I mean, that excites me because really we're, our entire organization is based around, you know, we believe in people. And when a guy like that goes to an internet cafe or goes to the mm-hmm. city and gets right. online and researches people in Uganda that are offering beekeeping programs and finds me and sends me an email. I mean, that's right there. He's already got 300 beekeepers that are ready to go that have built already their lives around beekeeping. And so for me, it's like you, you don't kind of go in and try and put this the square and the circle type of thing you just work with you know what's already on you the just assess assess the situation and just solve the problem that they're having right yeah I mean, that's, that's kind of what it what, what it's about <laughs> yeah absolutely i kind of want to keep going back to i'll say successes and i apologize that that's not sort of the right word to use but do you what is the 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 big overall sort of goal right like is there a sort of number you want to get to is there is there some type of like success point where you say hey we finally did it or is just is it a sort of never-ending quest to <laughs> to just do just keep doing this around, around the world oh i'm so bad at that because everyone always asks me that question they're like okay what is your goal for 2020 and i'm like well, not even for, not even for 2020 like i'm just meant like just in general right like yeah no no i know but i like what i do is i even if i I set a goal, I get there, I kick the bar higher, I keep going. Like, I, I honestly just, I don't have, a, an, you know, that finish line anywhere in my mind. I just want to generally keep going as long as I can and stay involved in all of these people lives, people's lives. I mean, we're always looking for these sustainable relationships with, you know, these people that we're working with, with these individuals or communities. And I just, as I find more and more individuals and communities that are committed to creating change themselves, and I just want to keep establishing these partnerships and pushing, you know, their business plans forward. And it's, it's hard when you go into these regions of the world because you start somewhere and then you point yourself in another direction right. and you can walk right. three feet and already right. you've encountered another opportunity or another need mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know so for me I just ideally you know I, I wish that we could get a lot more funding we're, we're putting a hundred percent of our proceeds into it we have no administrative costs so even with the small budgets that we have as a as a charity we're able to create so much we're really results driven and with you know more funding the more people we reach of course and so for me it's not about I want to help you know another 3,000 villages I just want to I want that number to just keep growing and growing and growing. And then, you know, what happens in that case is then all of those people then start to become active agents themselves. And and it becomes that ripple effect again that I talked about at the beginning of of this podcast. Like, you know, that one person put money Mm -hmm. under my door and look at the ripple effect of their actions. So I want to start and kind of, you know, plant these seeds in all of these individuals and communities and let people take it from there. And, and you never really know how far it goes, but I, I know it's going to go far. Here's a, I don't know if it's a better question, but it's a different question. What are you, what are you most proud of then? Like, what do you, when you take a step back and having a glass of wine, right? Like, what, what are you most proud of to this point? Like, cause that, I mean, look, there's a, <sighs> it's hard. Sometimes you have to like enjoy the, Again, I mean, you were successes, or maybe I should say, enjoy the impact that has been been made, right? Mm-hmm. But there has to be something where you're like, I'm really proud of what we did here. Yeah, 
you know, I've been working on that a lot lately um, just because I, I put in some hard years in South Sudan and it's a really rough part of the mm-hmm. world to mm-hmm. go to. Uh, in fact, all the regions that I go to are all in conflict um, except Uganda. And so, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things. I'm seeing a lot of poverty, a lot of need. Um, and so I would come home and I'd be like, okay, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've mm-hmm. got to do more. And, and I've been able to process everything that I've seen over there by turning it into this fuel to create change. And that, I don't know if that's healthy or not. I'd have to go talk to somebody <laughs> about that. Like, is this, is this okay? Is this like, <laughs> but that, that's what I do. I like. I feel I've seen so much stuff, and I just come home and go, "Okay, great, let's go to work." And that's how I deal with it. And so, that's, yeah, I like that. One of my South Sudanese friends, actually, he is one of the diaspora. He moved to Canada, and you know, I was talking to him on the phone, and he's like, "I'm going on and on about all this stuff I have to do this year, and how I'm going to get it done." And then he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" He's like, "Do you ever just sit back and celebrate what you've accomplished?" Yeah, there you and go. And I'm like. Why? How can I do that? I'm like, I would feel so guilty celebrating what I've done when, you know, there's so much more to do. And it and you do get lost in that in this industry, especially in these these regions of the world where, you know, there's just you feel like it's, it's a insurmountable. In the yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. But it's so right. important. And so I've been talking to my team about it. I'm like, we have to celebrate this. It's okay to do that. Right. Like we've accomplished a lot. And so when you ask me, you know, what are you most proud of? I think, um, I think it's, it's of course the results, it's the, the partners that we really do have long-term partnerships. We, we're not an organization that rolls in and delivers a water well or trains some beekeepers and leaves. We don't go in and drop off beehives and say, learn to beekeeper right. out of here. Right. Like I'm invested in all these people's lives and I'm really proud of that. I know mm-hmm. it makes my life so full and makes, you know, what I do so much more rewarding because these are partnerships, they're friends. In some cases now, you know, in Cameroon, I've been going there for 25 or more years, um, it, it, family. So it's just, I think it's, I am proud of those long-term partnerships in these people's lives that I've stayed connected to Um because I know there's value and meaning in that, and it's not just for me. It's not just for them. It's this. It's the connection between people, and I've. I'm really proud. I've been able to bridge these worlds and and see some success with people that I truly care about. So when's the book coming out? <laughs> <laughs> the book. Whenever you're gonna write it. Yeah. <laughs> so I I kind of like to. We could sort of end on this because it'll i think it's a good i like i like to end it on this because i think it it gives us a sense of of how to do that ripple effect a little bit of of how to you know do something very small to to have that ripple effect that could be something pretty massive right so i guess for people who maybe want to take a similar path that you did right maybe that they have you know, a small fashion startup, right? They're, they're, they have a brand that they're, 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 you know, they're selling stuff and, and they're doing, you know, good work. Maybe they have good sales and, and they have some employees, but they're really, they really have something maybe within them. They want to do more sort of on the impact side. I get that all the time. It's just, you know, I want to do more. I want to do more. I just, I don't know how, right. I think that's sort of a big thing too, is the education behind it is how can you do good the right way? is a big thing. So what, I guess, what advice would you give for, for somebody who, who maybe wants to, to take a, a similar path and, and change millions of lives <laughs> or impact yeah. millions of lives? 
Gosh, well, I think, you know, what I always tell people is that, you know, you don't have to have a big fashion company or you don't have to, you know, I'm back and forth. I've been to Africa 60 times or something. You don't have to do that. Like if you want to make change in people's lives, you can do it locally. It's, you know, even, even the me traveling over to these regions of the world, a lot of times, yes, there's a $10,000 water well going in that significantly changes people's lives. But there's also the time that I spend with people in, you know, there's one particular, um, a boys institution in Cameroon. And I've been going there since I was 17 or 18 years old. And I've stayed involved in people's lives over there for that long. And I, I really don't do much in that facility because I don't really believe too much in in sponsoring or supporting the orphanage system but the time that I'm spending with those kids is worth the value of you know a ten thousand dollar water well it's like so sometimes it's just the the effort the time the attention the care that you're giving someone the help it doesn't have to be financial Um, and if you can if you are in a place where where you can you know, donate, absolutely. Make sure you're researching that charity. Know how much is going into administrative fees. Um, get on the phone. You should, anybody in, you know, our company is quite active and I'm a really busy person, but if anybody calls and wants to know about the work that we're doing, I will get on the phone with them and talk to them. If you can't talk to the person that's on the ground, mm-hmm. then, you know, I I, I, right. I know those large organizations, you're never going to be able to talk talk to someone but I feel if you really want your money you want to know where your money's going and you want to make sure that you're making an impact somewhere and you want that direct connection with people that are on the ground then you should find a smaller organization that's willing to provide that to you and then of course you know I always just say if you have a company or a platform that has a a louder voice you know or you or you can use your skill or your talent for good there's lots of different ways of of applying yourself there and it doesn't have to be money you know you can volunteer different types of services to to people and and still make an impact or spread awareness or attention there's so many different ways yeah or just helping right buy buy a dress or a scarf right yeah right make sure you know if you're buying something you know where it's coming from who made it and you know I, I I just want to tell you just a really quick story when I was in Mali and one of the guys I've been partnering with his name is Bubakar and he does my mud cloth and there's mud cloth on our website yep. he makes these beautiful table runners and and I said to Bubakar you know when this product goes into somebody's home they've got their table runner on their table and they walk by it and look at it I said what do you want them to think about and he said, I want them. It's simple. I, when someone looks at something, you know, that's on their table or a, a throw cushion that's on their couch, I want them to remember that it's made by a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that we can, we can support local artisans. We can support, um, in our case, we can support artisans that are coming from these countries where we're helping. But the fact that it's made by someone's hands and that a human made it, it's like transparently sourced, ethically made, made with intention. You know, we're defending indigenous knowledge in artisanry. We're not harming the environment and it's all fair trade it's like know where your purchases come from and even that in its in itself is making a big difference amazing well thank you so much trina i appreciate you taking the time i know it's uh you know you've had a busy week and you're, and you're super busy and, and i always appreciate um those who who take the time out to to talk about the journey you know yeah it's, well uh, thanks for taking the time to, to interview people that are on this journey because you're, you're part of the solution right is getting getting these stories out there and these companies out there and organizations that are doing good so thank you